When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. I don't know about you, it could just be because we're in this space at the moment, but I feel like we're constantly hearing particular phrases or words that when you hear them, they sound amazing and you nod your head in agreement thinking, yeah, sure, I like that, I want that. But then in the back of your mind, you think, but what is that exactly? And how can I implement that in my life? Today's episode is all about that. We're going to be looking at what it means to be empowered. This is a word that we have seen a lot in social media and it's kind of thrown around as if you should know what to do with it. We hear about it in pre-birth conversations, a lot in pregnancy and childbirth and then into motherhood and making empowered decisions. So what does that exactly mean? Today, I have invited Laura Kalia. She's also known as Physio Laura, and she's coming to this conversation with so much experience in this women's health space because she is a women's health physiotherapist. Laura has also had three very different births along that spectrum of birthing, including an emergency cesarean, a VBAC, and a vaginal home birth. So Laura really knows what that journey of empowerment feels like and what it looks like for her. And she's going to share that with us today. And while we're speaking of empowerment, our good friends at Modibody have joined us for this episode. Modibody is the go-to brand for any of Life Leagues with a full range of apparel products that are great for periods, leaks, postpartum bleeding, leaky boobs, as well as reusable nappies, Modi Body is designed to support you for all the stages of your life. The latest collection to join the Modi Body family is the new Ultra range. It offers undies that absorb blood leaks that can hold up to 250 mils of liquid. Yes, undies, no pads, no disposables and no nappies. So gross? No. Smelly? Not at all. But comfy? Yeah. You all know that I have been using Modi Body for my period and bladder leaks for years. And I've saved hundreds, if not thousands, of disposable products from ending up in landfill. Some of these plastic products take up to 500 years to break down. So support your leaks and help save the planet with Modi Body. You can use the code Brave Mama 22 for 15% off your first order, and this will exclude sale items, bundles, gift cards, and maxi 24 hours. It expires on the 31st of December 2022. So let's jump into this episode with Laura. 
Hello, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is an absolute honor to have someone like you on our show. Oh, thank you, Steph. I'm very happy to chat to you. <laughs> so the one question I like to ask mamas at the very beginning, sometimes it stumps us a little bit, is who was Laura before becoming a mama? Oh, yeah. Good question. Well, I feel like I have to say I was a wifey. Give my husband some credit for our relationship. I would say I was an athlete. I was very into my sports. I played mm -hmm. a lot of hockey and did athletics. I was a physio and still am a fun-loving, very happy-go-lucky, positive lady with just slightly more stress and chaos in tow now that I have three children. <laughs> <laughs> and so did that, like your upbringing in that really sporty type arena, did that lead you into physiotherapy in the beginning? Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up my whole life doing athletics. That was my main jam. I, I always joke. I was a triple jumper and my husband thinks like having hop, step and jump as a sport is just not really on par with what he did. But I did triple jump. I played hockey pretty competitively and I was very disciplined. I obviously was around physios a lot because you get injured and it definitely got me interested. So I think I probably came into physiotherapy from the sports background, wanting to be like a sports physiotherapist but um, I had always all really been quite maternal and I really liked babies. So I think as soon as I got into physiotherapy and I realized there was this whole arm of women's health physiotherapy, it didn't take long to get me away from sports and into the women's health arena. Did you come into that pelvic health space before becoming a mum as well? Yes. I can only imagine, did that assist you in your journey to motherhood in pregnancy and childbirth then? I would say yes and no. Okay. Uh, yes, in that I, I certainly had a whole wealth of knowledge about the body and the changes. And I was taking active birth classes before I even was pregnant for the first time. So I very much was clued up as to the process. Um, I guess, so I've had three births, very different births. And it's my last birth that really feels like it's, I've learned so much from that. So I'm saying yes and no, because it was yeah. this, even though I've, knew a lot of this before my first birth. It was really my last birth that changed a lot of things for me. But it was really handy to know about the changes in the body because as soon as I got a little niggle in my back, I didn't blow that out of proportion. I knew what that was. I knew how to manage it. And I guess I could prevent things from getting worse as well. So I was able to get on top of things before they became a big issue. I knew how to recover postnatally. I didn't go and push myself and yeah start running a week later or anything like that. I was wearing my compression garments. So yeah, it was a real leg up, I guess. I forget that probably not everyone has that starting base before they mm. fall pregnant, even though the knowledge is out there these days. A lot of women still don't, you know, know about birth and hormones and you know how your pelvis changes and about how important rest is after birth and so that's a big part of what I do for work now is to try and just spread that message as far and wide as possible because it really does help to have this information it's never too late but it definitely does help to have this information beforehand even before so, you're pregnant though right we're not talking like in your antenatal classes we're talking even before that because I mean realistically we don't even understand our own anatomy half the time right no like yeah. and I always joke with colleagues and friends who are on you know the same page about oh god help our daughters because they're growing up with us saying no that is not your vagina that is your vulva or that is your clitoris if you can know your anatomy well and understand your body just in general before pregnancy I think it gives you such a leg up in understanding the pregnancy and birth process 
And you mentioned that your third birth is kind of where you learned the most, and I'm assuming that might have been the most easiest birth. I'm interested to know what your first was like, because even with all the wealth of knowledge, nothing quite prepares you for your first birth, does it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I actually was probably a little bit too confident in that I thought I knew so much. Are we actually, so how crazy is this? My husband and I didn't take a birth class before my first birth, which I think is ludicrous now, but I thought I knew not at all. I, I didn't think I knew at all, but I thought I knew enough. Sure. But I didn't think I needed to get him on board so much. Like I, I think I was naive enough not having had a, a birth before that I'd be able to like guide him through and help him through. So we really did hardly any birth preparation. We actually did a birth class for our third one. I love and we it. Just, we sat there looking at each other saying, I can't believe we're doing this for our third baby. But it truly did make a difference. So I think there was so much... I was very humbled from my first and second birth. Like just, I don't think I actually prepared well enough because I think I did skip it and think that, no, no, I've got this. I've been teaching this. I know about this, but there was something about, I guess, getting out of the driver's seat and like being taught and like pretending like I'm not a physio and that I need to pretend like I know nothing and start again. There was something really humbling about doing that for my third, but yeah, first birth, like, It was a very positive, I had emergency cesarean and overall very, very positive experience given that that wasn't what I expected. I think there there was a lot to process, I guess, with it all. And you've got a baby and you don't know anything. Like you really, (laughs) like as much as you intellectually can understand things, it's still so fresh and new and you're trying to navigate what sort of parent you want to be. And, oh, there's just so much. And that's why I, I'm sure you've heard of this, but matrescence as a term is something I've been diving into. Yes. And I'm like, I wish I knew about that because I think that would have helped that transition to motherhood as well. Because it can be a pretty steep learning curve to go from childless to first baby. It is, right? I don't think, I, I personally have not met anyone and I had an early childhood background. So I was similar to you in thinking I've got this motherhood thing. I just need to yeah. know how to birth it. And then I know what I'm doing. <laughs> we don't know what we're doing. We don't have a clue what we're doing. And I love that you brought that up because I follow someone on Instagram and that is the name of her account because now we are starting to have these amazing conversations about that. It's not instinctly within us as a female to know how to birth and become a mum on its own so yes yes, we have instincts yes I'm not saying that but we don't have the rule book for every element of childbirth and motherhood (laughs) well we're not growing up in that village where you are seeing birth and seeing breastfeeding and so for you're holding babies and that back in the day when we were living in the village and we were all in a big tribe together. We were witnessing that. So I guess you you were probably more tapped into your instincts then. Whereas these days you can get to motherhood and you may have never held a baby, let alone seen someone ever breastfeed, let alone, I imagine most people go their entire lives without ever seeing a birth because that's, it's not in front of us anymore. It's very Mm -hmm. much behind closed doors. Same with breastfeeding. That's very covered these days. And yeah, even holding a baby, like I said, how crazy that the first baby you might hold is your own. Like, of Mm -hmm. course, it's hard to really tune in with those instincts when I agree with you, they are there, but like, I guess they, they don't get nurtured in our society these days because we're just not seeing it like we, we would have back in the day. And it's funny how we say the village and where's the village gone. But when we really think about it, I don't, my mom never really had a village and 
neither did her mum. So like, how far are we going back here? Because it's not something that's just happened overnight. I know we've become super independent, strong women who can pay half a mortgage and we can be educated and all of that. But it wasn't like it was just yesterday that we've said goodbye to the village, right? Yeah. No, I, when I picture it in my head, I picture like, you know, ancient, ancient civilizations. Like I don't picture anyone in my lineage of the last couple of generations. Yeah. I think they were still fairly isolated and they didn't have that much support and community around them either. But I also feel, and again, it might just be in the space I'm in at the moment or the bubble I'm in, but I feel a real shift in the times at the moment. I think there's a real wave coming through. And I think our daughters are going to assume the village is there. Like it's not going to be so hard to create. I think they it's going to be a bit more natural, a bit more organic. I I see that shift happening. I hope so. And this is one thing we have to be thankful for, I guess, in social media. I mean, it gets a really bad rap and there's some really yucky stuff and it can really play with us on lots of different levels of mental health. However, this is the one positive I think we have, like your podcast and our podcast, having these conversations as the legacy for our girls, they can always come back and listen to it at any time. And just have all the information there to process and absolutely. And you can learn from people all over the world. Like you're not restricted to just the people within your local area. So the knowledge can be shared far and wide. Like I'm sure you've looked at your podcast stats before. It always blows my mind. The tiny little countries that people tune in from. I'm like, what? Where is that? Yeah. From Egypt. That's amazing. Yes. So it's so cool to be able to have this platform to share this message because it does mean that more and more women have access to this, which is amazing. Yeah. And I think I too, just with information, it seems like we are also starting to become a little less unbiased when we come to talk about different types of birth. So I know in your you just said in your first birth in yours had an emergency cesarean. It wasn't what you planned, but it was still lovely for you. That is amazing because I think when we talk about emergency seizures, there's quite often a negative connotation about, well, this is not towards you, but I failed or I didn't get the birth that I wanted. So therefore I am not X, Y, Z mom. And the fact that you said it was still amazing is beautiful. Yeah. And I think that's what I've come to realize So I had an emergency C-section followed by another C-section, which was a failed VBAC followed by home birth. So I've had quite the range. Yes, you have. (laughs) The conclusion I've come to is that the mode of delivery is almost the least important part. It's whether you felt informed, whether you felt confident, whether you felt seen, whether you felt heard, whether you felt... um, supported. I think Mm. they're the factors that are the most important when it comes to birth because, um, and like in hindsight, I guess after having my home birth, I can look back at my C-sections and go, oh, okay. Like it was a different experience at the time. It felt positive. Like I had, I had no, what I felt like was trauma or anything Mm. like that from it. In hindsight, I probably think, oh, I really wasn't that empowered. I really wasn't that informed, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't change it doesn't then become a negative experience for me. It's still positive. It's just my home birth was like here. Yes. That experience was less, but I speak to women who 
have home births and have severely traumatic experiences because they didn't feel listened to. They didn't feel supported. And then I have women who have planned cesareans and have the best birth ever. And I just think we need to move away from, oh, how did you deliver your baby? And I, what you just said as well, um, feeling like you failed. So many women come to me after a C-section and say, oh, I feel like my body's broken. I feel like Mm. I've, I've failed my baby. And there's so much shame around it. And I remember a lady who had had a home birth after my cesarean had said, she pretty much apologized to me and was like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, what? What? It hadn't occurred to me that that maybe my experience was quote unquote bad because I was having a great time. And I just remember being like, oh, stuff you and your home birth. (laughs) Whatever. I had a great experience. (laughs) And I can see the message was lost. I don't think she meant it that way. But yeah, I think we need to move away from like, how was your baby delivered? Was it through the sunroof or was it through the vaginal canal? Because that is almost the least important part. I think it's all the other factors. And I spoke with a lady recently who does trauma work and she was talking about being safe, seen and soothed is the three things that we need to feel safe um, in birth. And so I think regardless of mode of delivery, if you can feel safe, seen and soothed, then you're going to have an amazing birth experience. So that's kind of where... I've gotten to from my professional and personal experience combined when it comes to birth now, um, it's it's not as simple as, oh, you had a vaginal delivery. Well, great. You had a great birth. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I can't even tell you how powerful that message is going to be to so many of our mamas and your community too. And they've probably heard it, but I just think to hear that from someone who's a physiotherapist, who's had three different birthing experiences to say, just forget it, forget the politics, forget all of the the verses, the vaginal verses, this, the natural, this, and just the experience overall. And I think that is going to help our girls too, right? And don't you think that then carries over into motherhood? If you have that attitude of, I just want to feel these things regardless of on paper, what it looks like, i.e. vagina delivery or C-section. I think that then carries over into motherhood. If you feel confident, if you feel supported, if your mental health is well, if your physical health is well, does it actually matter if you breastfeed or bottle feed, if you co-sleep or correct? don't? Like all these other things that carry over into motherhood where it feels like you have to either be here or here and you have to choose a camp and, you know, do you do diet what's it called cloth nappies or you know disposable it's like all these dichotomies and it's like it's not that simple it's like do you feel good within yourself Mm -hmm. that is all that matters and it doesn't matter on paper what those choices I guess might be um about how you feel with it yeah yes that pitting of one another is something that I had no clue even existed in this motherhood space until you're there Mm -hmm. and that whole versus breastfeeding this and that and the messages that we are getting from the people who we trust to care for us who are saying you should probably just try that breast a bit more before you go that bottle because you know what's going to happen and then I don't know about you, but then they start throwing stats at you. Yeah. Like breastfed babies are this many times less likely to have asthma. Mm. Okay. This, you know, v- vaginal babies are this. And I just think I used to get upset hearing that, but now I think, wow, you, the individual are in such a position that you feel like you have to defend what you do as a job. And I'm sorry that that's happened to you. Like if you're, if you're a nurse and that's your thing, 
and you have to now defend it because people have judged what you do. Like this judging is just mm. flying mm. everywhere, isn't it? And it's not no. kind. No. It's not helpful. And I think that's why we end up with so many women in this mental health space very quickly. Yep. 100%. Because look at the path mm. that we we tell people to walk. Do this. No, don't do that. Do this. No, don't do that. You're not good enough. It's and we doubt ourselves. I think that's the the at the the crux of it is that yes. so many mothers doubt themselves and they don't trust themselves. That's a huge factor in it is that we lose this trust within ourselves because we've got so much noise on the outside. It's all new. It's all fresh. And we don't have that inner confidence to know that what we're doing is right. And we're getting bombarded with opinions and judgment and shame and all of this that you then you lose that inner compass, I think. Um, yes. And it can get really confusing. And I remember with my first baby, I don't know, it all blends in, but one <laughs> in your checkups with baby and I've breastfed really, really well touch would have never had any problems. I've had big, big babies. Like it's never been a concern, but even for me, and I'm a confident, like I've always been fairly confident in my parenting and breastfeeding, all of that. I went to an appointment once and the lady told me, I think that I was feeding probably too much. Baby was like well into the percentiles and it wasn't sleeping overnight. So I could probably drop a night feed, something like that. And I was like, yeah, cool, whatever. <laughs> and then I went back the next time and baby had dropped like five, five um, oh, percent on the points. percentile. So like nothing given it was in the nineties. And she was like, oh, you know what? You should probably be feeding a little bit more. That's probably not ideal drop. And I just remember thinking, <laughs> wonder women are bloody confused and doubt themselves. Cause last time you told me that like I had to drop a feed. I wasn't doing enough. And this time you tell me I have to up a feed. And I'm like, whoa, I can totally get it. Like lucky. Yes. I personally didn't take any of the advice on board, but I can see why women are struggling in motherhood. And I think it starts from having an empowered pregnancy, going into an empowered birth, then going into empowered motherhood. Because I think if you, if you spend pregnancy not trusting yourself and not feeling like you can have trust in your body and that things are not working or something's wrong or and then going into birth, not feeling safe, seen and soothed and maybe having trauma, that then carries over into motherhood. And so I just think if we can change that whole cycle, I literally feel like women's lives will change. That was a slight rant, but that's where my I, mind is at the moment. I was just gobsmacked because everything you were saying is making so much sense in terms of instinctually. I lost my instincts after birth and then I couldn't even make a decision, Laura, on what to eat for breakfast. I was like peanut butter or Vegemite. I don't know. So I'd walk away. Oh, wow. And, and, and probably a good week. I actually didn't eat quite a lot until I ended up in mental health support. Mm -hmm. And you don't realize that you're actually that sick until you're like, oh, hang on a minute. I inability to make decisions on what to eat is a massive red flag. And I think I'd love to touch on that, what you just said, going into things empowered. Let's let's unpack empowerment because I feel like it's all over Instagram, empowered, informed decisions. That's amazing to say that. To do that is the next level. So when you don't have instincts and then you can't make informed decisions because you don't have all the bloody information to start with, and then I think to go into empowered pregnancy and birth, you also need one trusted person. Yes. So, And I know like that midwife told you two different things, but I think sometimes then when you have one trusted person and then someone else, of course they're going to say slightly different things. 
So if you have one trusted person who you can go to for consistency Mm -hmm. to bounce your ideas off, but the most important part of all of that is to say, why? (laughs) To To your midwife, okay. And I wish you had that empowerment to start with to say, why do you want me to drop a feed? Is it going to be detrimental to my baby? If they are sitting on the 100th percentile and they're still thriving, why do I need to drop a feed? Yep, exactly. Get the answer, right? And then make an informed decision because you're trying to make a decision based on just a comment rather than information. Yes, exactly right. And you don't have the full picture. So how can you possibly make a choice? if you don't have the full picture, but this is where I feel like the conversation is so much bigger work. when you're saying empowered, like how do we get empowered? And I think about my own journey and I'll speak for myself, but I know this to be true for a lot of women as well. It comes back to this confidence to not be a people pleaser, to not have mm. to say yes, because you don't want to rock the boat. Bingo. So I know for me, I, and this is nothing against him. He was a fantastic obstetrician, but I had a male obstetrician. And I know that the power dynamic, I know that I didn't feel like I could speak up. This is nothing on him. I don't want to, like, this is really, that was my thing. But I I wanted to please. I didn't want to rock the boat. I didn't want to be that annoying person that was always asking questions or like saying, I don't actually want to do that. I don't want to be induced. I don't want to. I didn't want to, you know, be annoying. And I guess I look back at that and I'm like, well, that's that's how a lot of girls are being raised these days is to be quiet and sit down and like stay in your place and don't be too loud don't be too brash don't be too bossy exactly and I feel like for me so much of that I had to unravel from from just growing up and it's not because nothing bad happened to me I had a fantastic childhood fantastic life but I just think I was such a chronic people please and I didn't realize that until my third birth where I was like oh I feel so uncomfortable saying no to people I feel yes. so uncomfortable saying I need this so mm-hmm. in my postpartum third time round, like I had a meal train and I actually asked for help (laughs) and like all these crazy things and it felt so uncomfortable for me to say things like hey do you mind helping me with this hey do you mind if I lie down and rest while you do that and again like if that is not a problem for you hats off to you that is amazing but I know that this is a problem for a lot of women and I just had to unravel so much of that to be empowered I had to let go of what would people think yeah if I what would you think of me are you yeah that it's really, crazy how deep it runs though. A hundred percent. And I think it it's the misogyny that we've grown up with that we're now learning about that we didn't even realize we were in it. And even yeah. though you had an amazing life, as did I with my nuclear family, it still was ingrained in every single thing that we did. 100%. And when you learn about it, you're a bit shocked. You're like, wow. Yeah. And wow. I think again, this that's where this, I feel this tide is changing. I have an absolute firecracker of a middle daughter. She's so high spirited. She's the best, but she can be, you know, big. She can be really big. And I find myself occasionally dipping into like trying to like, I guess like reduce her, like to make it easier, to make it more sociable, to like acceptable acceptable and I always catch myself I'm like no 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 Laura like she is perfect as she is regardless of whether it's maybe frowned upon in society for her to be yelling I find myself really wanting to lean into like nurturing her spirit without telling her that she has to be smaller or that she has to 
you know, please me, God forbid, like she doesn't, she does not have to please me. She just has to be herself. So it's really fascinating to then parent a daughter, especially a really spirited daughter, because I can see that, that patterning be like, honey, just shh you know yeah, just yeah. quiet like don't go up to those people like don't, don't it's essentially saying like be less you and I'm like no I do not want that message to go through so it's really cool to have that awareness and then be able to you know do my best I'm sure I'm going to make many a mistake but oh, do my best to try and nurture that that's amazing that I mean I think that's something I think we're all struggling with in terms of how we were raised and how our parents were raised, seen and not heard. And, you know, you do exactly what your parents say when, when they say it. And, but now our kids are, I think sometimes our grandparents are struggling looking at our parenting going, are you just no control? Are just going to let them do that? Um, yeah. But I, I mean, I'd love to go back and just touch on, you know, how you're talking about your male obstetrician. Yes. I will share with you. I had that exact same power struggle with my female midwife. I didn't want to upset the apple cart. I didn't want her to think badly of me. I, I wanted to be a good patient and do everything right because this baby took so long to, to come to us anyway. And I knew my place in privilege on the midwife program. So I, don't, I think it's a funny oh. thing, that power between medical professional and patient. Because yeah. you think about it, as kids, what do we talk? We go to the doctors, we yeah. sit still, yeah, we're yeah. quiet, they help us and we leave. They yeah. have all the power, they fix us. Yeah, it's not like a collaboration. It's a, yeah, that's a good point. Interesting as well what you were saying, because it's like you felt like, oh, I need to be grateful that I'm even here. This baby's taken a long time to get. It's almost like you had to give up your preferences because you should be grateful. And that's another messaging in society, isn't it? Like, well, same with when women are having babies. Now you should be grateful you have a healthy baby. Mm. You should be grateful that baby and you are healthy and alive. And it just bypasses all the other things that are really important as well. It's so interesting. Could get me on my soapbox with that one. I had a community nurse once say to me, I was trying to breastfeed and struggling, of course, as a first, and I couldn't sit. So after the trauma of the birth, the stitching was right on that from front to back. And you couldn't really sit any comfortable way. But she said, she turned to me and she said, do you know what, Stephanie? You just need to start enjoying that baby and kind of did the finger point. And I was like, oh, how's the guilt? Okay. And she took my phone. I have the photo. She goes, give me your phone. You need to take a photo. You need to take a photo of all these milestones in. And she took a photo. And now I look back at it and I'll never forget that conversation. She was like a really flamboyant out there type of personality so I I think at the time I brushed it off as just being it's just her because I still loved like I still love what they do yeah but looking back it made me feel like rubbish like this big you know language is so important isn't it Mm -hmm. being sensitive I still remember a midwife told me that when I was about to be wheeled in for a c-section um don't worry love that baby was never coming out your vagina and I think she thought she was being really helpful but that that stuck to me that my body was broken and I had to work on a lot of that for my home birth because I was like yeah but I think but isn't my body broken? Like, I don't know if babies come out that way for me. Maybe I'm just different. And again, I think people have the best of intentions, but language is, yeah, so powerful, isn't it? Yeah. It's something I think an area that we could work on that potentially I haven't seen a whole body of work on. So we're talking about um, how we present information, but we don't actually say how to do it. 
you know, when you catch yourself saying something, you're like, oh, put those words back in. Why did I just say that? <laughs> you know, sometimes when you say something, I've said it to my husband, I'm like, actually, can I just take that back? I didn't mean, I actually wanted to say this. And then your second time around, you get it a little bit closer to what you were intending. Yes. I feel like our egos don't let us do that enough. Yeah. Like say, sorry, I was wrong. I want to redo that. Yeah. That's yeah. True. Or if that midwife was looking at me and she just saw the color drain from my body when I'm supposed to be enjoying this baby and I can't even sit down. I'm sorry. I can see that probably affected you. It's not what I actually meant. I meant I'm, I'm here for you or whatever, but yeah. that whole thing about language and how, what we say and how we say it, mm. I think yeah. we've just planted a seed there, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Mm. And that's how, and look, I know you're doing amazing things, obviously with your podcast, I've been a long time listener and some programs that you are probably doing all of that, what we've just said for women. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, sure. So yeah, love a podcast. (laughs) So I have the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast and the aim of that, probably very similar to yours, is just to be able to spread this knowledge far and wide. So to help women truly feel empowered in their pregnancy, in their birth and beyond. So it's a whole range of topics from experts in the field, midwives, dietitians. Uh, I haven't got an obstetrician. I was about to say that, but um, doulas, yoga teachers, like all the interests that I've personally had. It's a really, it's, I don't know if you feel the same, but it's such a personal cup filler, my podcast, because it's all the things I love talking about, all the things I'm interested in, and I get to share them with a whole bunch of women. So that's a lot of fun. And then I also have my pregnancy posse program. So I developed that before I had um, my own children, actually, and it's been this beautiful community since then. And what I wanted is that in my work as a physiotherapist, I, I was so hyper aware of how limited my reach could be. So I knew yeah. that no matter how fast I could be or how efficient I could be, I could only see X amount of patients in the time that I was working. And I could only see people who could travel to come and see me. Sure. And you know, obviously Australia, the world is a very, very big place. So a lot of the people in my posse program are rural farmers or women overseas who don't have the same level of women's health physiotherapy that we do here in Australia. I recognized that there was this real need to Mm. spread what I was talking about behind closed doors, one-on-one to these women, to spread that to the masses because I knew how important it was. I, I had women coming to me saying things like, oh my God, I just wish I knew about this beforehand, before my birth, before I fell pregnant, whatever the case might be. And I knew that that was so possible for women to have a leg up, to have the knowledge beforehand, as we were talking about earlier. And so, yeah, I developed this membership program. So it it has weekly workouts through pregnancy because a lot of women exercise really struggle to know. Yeah. what. Same with prolapse. You know, so many women I find either go and do incorrect exercise because they don't know what to do. So they just continue with what they were doing pre-pregnancy or pre-prolapse. Yeah, because the doctor says to them at six weeks, oh, yeah, yeah, you're you're fine. You've done your checkups. Sure. (laughs) No. (laughs) Exactly, though. And if you don't have that information, it's up to you, unfortunately, in the system we have at the moment. It's up to you to have to go and seek that information out. It's not given to you on a platter. It's not 
you know, easily available. It's becoming better. I, either women do that or women stop exercising completely because they don't want to injure themselves or make things worse, which is also just as bad. So I wanted to be able to provide somewhere where women don't have to think because let's be honest, our mental load is at it's capacity. <laughs> yeah, sleep you know, deprivation. Oh, so many things that we're trying to juggle. You don't need to think about what to do. You want to watch a video, do a workout, know it's appropriate. Yeah. And I wanted a space where women can connect with each other, ask questions, not go down those Google rabbit holes that oh, you yeah. often do in pregnancy when you're Googling every symptom that you might have and pathologizing all these things. And you want to know from, like you were saying earlier, a trusted source. Lived that, experience. Yeah, this is normal or that's not normal, but here's three things you can do about it. So it's yeah. been an amazing, amazing program to work on. It's my pride and joy. I love it. So you can tell your passion and that's, I mean, that really comes through even in the podcast that you really care about these women and care about supporting them within that space let's talk about prolapse some more because as a women's health physiotherapist I can imagine you would be across prolapse for you yourself with your three births have you had any type of experience with prolapse so I have with my third baby. So after my first two births, cesarean sections, I had no experience. I had a slight amount of incontinence during pregnancy when I would sneeze. So after my third birth, that was my first vaginal delivery. I also had a tear, um, quite a significant tear needed to be repaired um, surgically. So I had a lot of healing to, to experience afterwards. And for me, the early days of postpartum looked like I could stand up for 30 seconds and then I would feel like my perineum was so heavy and so uncomfortable that I had to lie down again. Or yeah. I had to cup my hands um, on my perineum and feel like I had to lift it up because it literally felt like it was going to fall out. And I'd never experienced that before. And I was like, ooh, like this is, this is a very strong sensation. I vividly remember going to the beach I maybe would have been a week postpartum and I felt finally good enough. That was the first time I'd left the house, I think. And I thought, you know, what, let's just go for 15 minutes, get some fresh air. And I must've looked like I was having the best time because I was lying on the sand because I could not stand up and I couldn't, oh. I couldn't sit either because of this uncomfortable, it was like a throbbing sensation. And I think it was probably mostly to do with my tear, but I'm not sure it could have just been perineal recovery, but yeah, I vividly remember I could not, I could not do anything but lie down for really a good couple of weeks. And that was really hard, especially with having kids around. That was really hard. And that's where I had to lean into asking people for help and making sure I actually had the support around me. Because I don't know, I, I wonder how my perineum would be now if I didn't get to rest. I really do wonder because I rested hard. I was, <laughs> I had an afternoon nap pretty much every day for the first two weeks or an afternoon lie down. I didn't lift my kids. And I so feel for women who have prolapse after birth when they have toddlers, if they don't have help, because you need to parent, you know, if you're on your they own, need you don't have the support, they need you. And it is, you can do all the ergonomic things in the world, but if you don't have support, mm. I just think about those poor perineums and vaginal passages that are weak and vulnerable and need, you know, rest. And if you can't give it that, like, I just think long-term, it makes it really hard for women. So I was fortunate I had the support. And then once that perineal heaviness, throbbing sensation resolved, I vividly remember, I, I, I can't recall the timeline, like maybe six weeks postnatal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably about that. 
I was in the shower and I thought, oh, I'd noticed that my throbbing had stopped. You know how the absence oh, of yeah. you don't realize until uh, you're like, oh, yeah, that happens. you get used to it. Correct. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, I feel like there's a tampon in my vagina. Like I feel like there's this fullness there. And straight away I was like, oh, and I was in the shower and I shouldn't have done it, but I palpated. So I put a finger into the vagina and I could feel tissue there. Now, having never had prolapse symptoms before, my vaginal canal had never had a bulge there. I'd never felt tissue down there. And I spiraled like emotionally. I just went down this this spiral and I cried. I called my husband and I was like, oh, I just put my finger in my vagina and I can feel something there. And I think I have a prolapse. And I was like, mind blown because I am a women's health physio. I know that this is almost normal to be expecting this, this early postpartum. I knew all the really things. common. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew what I would say to a client if they came to me <laughs> in this spiral And I'd reassure them and all of that. But I still found it really hard to pick myself out of there. And I thought this is so powerful for me to now empathize with my clients because it is really hard. And I know the things. I know (laughs) that it's probably going to be fine, but it's still really hard. I I, I went through the, am I ever going to be able to run again? Am I ever going to be able to surf again? Like, am I going to always have this uncomfortable bulge? Like, what's it going to look like? You know, sexually, mm-hmm. is it going to change anything? I had all the questions and I knew yeah. the answers, but I still just went on that spiral. And that was such a good lesson for me. And fortunately, I have an amazing colleague slash friend. I booked it with her you know, ASAP. I told her, whoa, oh. spiraling here. Like, I think I got a prolapse. And she just sent me the most beautiful message back. It was something like, I know you know this, but just in case you need to hear it, you're only six weeks postpartum. We almost expect this. You're such early days. The fact that it's not coming outside the vagina, we know that's a really good sign. You're standing up. So we know that it's going to sit lower than if you were lying down. All these things you told me. And I I just took a big breath. I was like, reset. I'm good. I'm going to be okay. And you know what? Fortunately, I would say I am 99.9% asymptomatic now. I'm now nine months postnatal. I'm, I can do my whole life completely fine. I, running and all of that. And I feel very fortunate that I got there because I know a lot of women would find that triggering to hear because they're not there and they want to know, are they ever going to be there? You know, like I, I, I totally get that. Um, so that's been my personal experience with prolapse. And I, 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 I notice I find myself wanting to preface it with being like, oh, my experience is really mild and blah, blah, blah. But I I do think it's important to share anyway, because, you know, we can't just diminish what we've gone through because we know other people have it worse. Because I do know that the woman that's listening to this right now, who is two weeks postpartum and just put her finger in her vagina and freaked out, will want to hear this message. So regardless of whether it's hard to hear because some women haven't made a full recovery, I still think it's important to share. I do too, because for the sisterhood, I am so grateful that yours was able to become back to some type of normality for you. There's no way just because my prolapse is still still hanging out in my underpants for the day that I wouldn't want to wish that on anyone. And I don't think anyone would have that. Hearing positive stories is really important, just as it is with traumatic birth and positive birth. I think you need like a really just people be able to share their story no matter what a real balance yeah that's true yeah. yeah so that I mean yeah there, there will be some people where they're prolapse they can come and see a women's health physio like you and get it back to a place where they're non-symptom, non-symptomatic and then there will be women like us who are living it with it 
even with physical symptoms though, Laura, we have been able to work on lots of other aspects of our life where I can still feel it. Yes. Do I let it bother me all day, every day? No. Mm. It's a choice. And a lot of mental health space work there, a lot of whole body glutes, legs, everything strengthening yeah. so that you are not constantly living in that I feel broken state. Yes, 100%. That's a good point you make. I think so much of prolapse diagnosis and prolapse treatment is the mental health aspect as well. I don't think you can only focus on the physical and not address the mental because they really are so intimately linked that you need to be working on here and there. Your emotional, your diet, your sex, everything, everything. It's so encompassing of a human being that you really need to be looking at. It's not just one thing. No, you can't isolate it to, I even think, some people still think it's just a pelvic floor issue and they think, well, I just need to get my pelvic floor stronger. And I explained to them, which I'm sure you're very well versed in because you've been through this yourself, but no, we're going to share the load. Like if you're bending down to pick up your toddler, sure, you might have the most banging rock solid pelvic floor, but if your biceps are weak and your glutes are weak and your core is weak, well, your pelvic floor is going to have to take a lot more of that load. Whereas if you can share the load, get your whole system strong. And that's definitely a myth. I think I try to bust as well is that sure pelvic floor, absolutely important. Not, not downplaying that at all, but it's, it's really one piece of the puzzle. Like it really is. And it's often a good starting base um, because it is that hammock underneath. So you can get some immediate relief if you do improve the bulk of that muscle underneath, but that's one, such a, such a one piece of a good size puzzle. There's so much to address. uh, Like you said, constipation, bowels, diet, the whole lot. Yeah. And I feel like even when you do work on your pelvic floor I know if I've if I overdo it then like I told you earlier the lower back goes and so if you've got this core that's weak it's like the weakness just moves from the pelvic floor up to the core (laughs) or up to the upper body strength and it's just like you've got a it is all encompassing and it's it's quite a lot to take on mentally. Oh, now I've got to make my whole bloody body strong. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Damn it. I wanted one exercise that was going to fix it all. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of, yeah, like stripping it all back. And it's almost like you have to learn to move again. It's yes. like starting from a blank slate almost. You have to start again. And it's fresh. Like with any injury, I think it's so frustrating because there's often not an easy fix. Like you have to address all the by biomechanics and I was just thinking when you were saying that of that song you know like the the thigh bones connected to it and it's like oh yeah the whole body is so connected Connected. we can't isolate it it's ludicrous to think that we can just zone in on the problem spot no way the whole body connects to each other so it's a whole body issue all of the time really totally this is why I love reformer pilates the most people like what's that contraption I'm like this is just me it's my whole body that you've got to look after here you have one at home, don't you? I do. I had to because Amazing. I couldn't, I honestly could not afford to see the physio the amount of times I needed to go was a minimum three times a week. Yeah. Um, and plus not just the cost of that, but the cost of childcare while I was yeah. there, all of that encompassing. And then a lockdown and then another lockdown. It's like, I mentally was not coping, of course, because movement is medicine it's something that we're talking a lot about this season is that moving is your medicine for all of your health including mental health Mm. and so 
it, it wasn't an easy decision because they are really expensive. Yeah. But I said to my husband, the price that we are all paying by mummy not having physio outweighs stuff. So we had to be creative. We went into our garage and we pulled out all the baby stuff. Like I had all these amazing prams. I was like, because being a triathlete, I was going to yeah. run. I was going to, it's like, we probably need to sell that. So we were able to resell things secondhand to get the money together to buy a reformer. Nothing. Best thing ever. Yeah. I've got one too, but I need your advice on how to do a workout without all of your children sitting on top of you. Doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I, my kids know they can't sit on my tummy because, yep. you know, mummy's not good for that. But I often put one, or actually it's just my youngest. He's the one that needs to be on me. I put him on the box. Do you have a box? I don't, but I'll get one if it works. <laughs> get a Pilates box and put it next to you and I put some little... Um, one kilo weights next to it and he sits there doing these ones (laughs) he works out you work out it doesn't last for long that he is watching mum prioritize herself as well and mum move because it's important to her like I just think what they see through their eyes is so powerful that's amazing yeah we really need to do that let's talk about our kids like we have daughters and we are doing as much as we possibly can to help women Ultimately, Laura, I think we're doing it for our girls because the legacy is for them. What else can we be doing? Like, I feel like we're doing so much and we're here, we're there, we're on social media, we're doing podcasts. How can we really work to make sure it's going to make a difference for them? Hmm, that's a good question. I guess I, I so believe like if we tend to our own backyard and if everybody like tended to their own backyard, that the world would be a better place. And so I guess I think about how can I make sure my girls, and if that's all I ever did, but just made sure my girls grow up knowing what they know, if that's the only impact I ever had, that's a huge impact and that's generational. And then they pass that down. And I think the the message that I really want to send to, to my girls and my boy, but definitely my girls is to trust themselves and to like, listen to themselves as well I think the body is so wise and I think coming back to this empowered like if they just knew to trust themselves that they know when to eat that they know when they need whatever it is that they need that they know when they're not feeling it or whatever it is but I feel like that would just set set us up for this amazing wave of women who are confident know when to ask for help but also know when they've got it like know that they don't have to please everyone that they can trust themselves and if something doesn't feel right that they don't have to say yes and and whatnot and I guess like even menstruation I think about that with our girls and I think about like celebrating what Mm. our body does and not shaming it and celebrating pregnancy celebrating breastfeeding and birth and the way our body moves and changes and not wanting to bounce back into the skin we had beforehand, assuming that that was better than what we have now. And I think like just truly trusting themselves and truly loving themselves in all the different phases that would just carry over into whatever it is that they're presented with that would just carry over into being empowered and being confident. And yeah, like I said, knowing when to trust themselves, but also knowing when they need to ask for help and hand over those reins. Yeah. And receive it, right? Because yes. asking for help is one thing. Receiving it and being okay with it and not feeling guilty is another. <laughs> I, I, I know that deeply. <laughs> and I feel like, so I just listened to what you said about 
them being empowered in your space. And I really hope that my girl Elsie has that. Like, I feel like we're doing that every day, but then I jump forward to potentially when she's pregnant and he's going into a male led medical system mm-hmm. where the people who wrote the policies, the people who implement the policies and the doctors and obstetricians who are implementing them don't agree with what we're doing about being empowered and listening that collide yeah collide scares me and I could be just like thinking way too far down the track but I'm also thinking okay well how can we change that space Mm. and that's where I feel again it could just be my bubble but I feel like the there's this real wave of women coming through now who know more and who are coming and butting up against policies and guidelines and saying, no, that doesn't work for me. I don't want that. And having to, I guess, make the hospital or whoever it is that you're butting up against reflect on whether or not that's something like, I just think if the, I just picturing like this mass of women coming through, obviously we know hospital birth is the most resourced at the moment. So home birth is be amazing if anyone low risk and whatnot could home birth, but we know that the resources aren't there, but just to have women coming through the hospital system who are empowered and confident and willing to say, no, actually I don't want that. Mm. Then I think that's going to force change. Like it, it yeah. won't matter who's, top down it won't matter what they're saying if like especially if the evidence doesn't stack up and we know that there's I'm seeing lots of evidence come through now to say that xyz intervention is not actually showing better outcomes long term so okay well maybe we need to be reconsidering why are we doing so many caesars so many episiotomies so many whatever the intervention is if outcomes are no better it's going to cause or like a huge reflection piece I think for people to go well we can't justify doing something if we we don't have the science and the evidence to say that it is for a really valid reason if we know that one in three women right now are reporting birth trauma it's got to be we're going to be weighing all these things up so I think and again it could just be the space I'm in but I I see so many women now really interested in owning their space in the birth world and not just being a passive player but really being an active participant wanting to know about it not just I feel like the generation before us our our mothers and our grandmothers is a it was a very passive role for them in birth which is sad and humans oh it's horrible what they actually endured walking into birth it was literally they had no say in it for so much of it it was all about things being done to them not with them and I just think there's this whole wave of women walking in now going no 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 my body my choice I I own this vessel I get to make decisions about it and I just think that it's going to be amazing I'm not worried at all because I just think it's going to be epic that these these women are going to force change because they won't they won't accept what we're at currently I think maternity wise there's so many other systems that maybe are broken but we're talking about maternity we can't accept where we're at we're above world health organization recommendations for c-sections right now why are we having all these things we're not moving towards a healthier population in that way we are actually moving towards a more unhealthy population we need to assess this so I actually think it's going to be epic to see how it changes in the next couple of decades that's a really good question, Laura, because and we're going to teach our girls to say why and why and why. And I always say why to that stat because I hear it often in our space. The World Health Organization say our cesarean rates are too high. And I say why, why as in 
why does it matter? So if they're at 34% or if they're at 24%, what does that matter to the mums in the middle Mm. who potentially, because this is coming from a very personal perspective, I wish I was offered a cesarean and, and that hindsight thing is amazing. Had I had one, I wouldn't be living like I am now. And so I think when you talk in those numbers at that rate being too high and you want to bring it down, what level is going to be okay for mums like me? And that's not a question directed to you because that is way above our pay grade, but it's just, (laughs) but it's just as a curiosity thing is that, okay, we want to say we want to reduce them and no one has been able to say to me, it's because of this stuff. Well, and again, I'm not an expert, so I agree with you in that. It's definitely (laughs) not my jam. I guess from a survival, like from a species point of view, if we truly needed 30% of the population to have a surgical birth. And obviously it's not amazing for our population that we rely on surgery to birth our our young because we wouldn't survive so well if we didn't have access to that. So I guess that's where, I don't know why they choose the stat they do, but um, there's obviously a lot of risk with C-section and there's a lot of risk with any surgery that we have there's the flow-on effects that we know from for bugs as well not having the hormonal cascade not having the microbiome and whatnot and I guess we don't worry maybe yes do you worry about that for your kids in c-section like can you actually take that in and think oh my kids didn't have that or is it like oh it's just a thing I think my personality is can't change the past so just charge on forward so I think for me I don't think about it because granted I'm very fortunate my kids are very healthy they're not showing any signs that like maybe they were deficient in having certain things at birth I guess it's not at the forefront of my mind but I am also of the personality of like you know what I can't change that I had a c-section and I also believe in the universe and spirituality that I needed to go through that experience to be where I am now. And I guess I also think, well, what can I do now to make sure that my kids have great gut microbiome? And so I do all the things that are within my power right now to make sure my kids are really healthy and just release the past. But that's my personality. I always have been like that. Hmm. I was just thinking with what you said about, so this stat, I guess the flip side of it is that we probably also need to acknowledge that what, like prolapse, what are the risk factors for birth and for certain women with prolapse? And with some women, there is going to have to be this way up of a cesarean section may be your best option because of X, Y, Z. And I know that a, oh, what's the name of it? A risk questionnaire came out. I can't think of it. I, I might try. Like and- an assessment. Yeah. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Prior to deciding for vaginal cesarean birth, do you mean? Yeah, so it's a it's a questionnaire, and hmm. you go in and you answer the questions, and it gives you like a a risk assessment of what your risk of pelvic floor dysfunction is if you were to have a vaginal delivery. Okay. Yeah, and I remember I posted about, it and I copped I copped a little bit of heat because some people thought I was saying that everyone should have a C-section and and vagina delivery. It's a spicy topic birth. (laughs) Um, And I was like, no, I am not saying like, you won't find someone who's more like pro you do you than I am. But I thought this, this questionnaire was a really good movement in the right direction for women to just assess 
success and not from a scary point of view because I get that if you throw all these things and thinking like a low risk first time mom if you're throwing all these things at her saying okay you need to decide are you going to have a vagina delivery or are you going to have a cesarean section these are the risks of having a cesarean section these are the risks of having vagina I can get that that's really overwhelming mm. and that might be a bit intense, but I do think there's a proportion of women that probably could do with having a risk assessment for a vaginal delivery. And there's obviously a huge proportion of women who following a first birth have pelvic floor dysfunction and then need to make a decision about what they're going to do. So having more research in that area and having more tools to help those women decide and navigate because for some women having another vaginal delivery is the most traumatic thing that they could possibly entertain in their mind and I think it's really disappointing when those women have to defend their right to have a c-section as well I think that's really and on the flip side for me I felt like I had to defend my right to have a vaginal delivery because I didn't want another c-section so it's there's both ends of that scale but again I think it comes down to if someone really wants a certain birth it, it should be a matter of sitting down with them and unpacking why do they want that, making sure that they have all the information. And if they want to have a cesarean section because of X, Y, and Z, you should be able to have that. Mm-hmm. It's choice, isn't it? It's about being able to have that choice and have the support from people to have Correct. that choice as well. So I wish the choice was more around the individual woman over, over money or status. Yes. Yeah. So if the individual woman for what, even if she just decided I it's not my choice to birth vaginally for whatever reason. Correct. You don't need to really have to justify that. Correct. Let's unpack that some more. And I think if we can get to a place where we're not having to have conversations about statistics and we're talking about individual women, that would make me happy. But that's just me as a mum. I want my daughter to go in and say, this is what I'm thinking. Inform me. Yes, I love the information from all risks and benefits to both. When you say to someone, for example, oh, do you know there's like six or seven ways you can birth your baby? They nearly fall off their chair. I'm like, what do you mean? And then I, I often say, well, I had a vaginal cesarean. And they're like, oh, what? I'm like, well, yes, because my baby literally was cut from the front to the back and brought out via forceps. There was nothing natural about that process. And so yeah, it's just interesting how you can just start all these different conversations and then hope that your daughter can go in and say, I know my stuff, I think, yeah. but there's no guarantee. We can only do our very best intentions, right, Laura, which is what, what we're doing. Did you have for your second birth? How did that? Oh, yeah. They, thanks for asking. Because <laughs> a lot of people often say, how do you have a second baby? And just instinctively I ran away from where the trauma happened and so I ended up going to a private obstetrician I had the privilege to do that with my health insurance at that time I didn't have that the first time but I did it the second time he guided me through and I said I have to have a Caesar he's like let's talk about that some more shall we and he did exactly what you just said he unpacked it all for me told me all the risks and benefits and at the end I said actually the Caesar doesn't sound that easy is what I thought. And so the plan was, it was just a, a roadmap to birth vaginally. And if at any point I was not okay mentally or physically or the baby, then a cesarean could happen. I went in feeling super empowered. I, I asked and requested for an induction mm-hmm. and he again talked to me. He's like, do you think you really need it? Yeah, I do. Cause I don't want to be at home with a one-year-old and a prolapsed bladder hanging in my underpants and then a baby pushing it all out because that's the visual that I had in my head. Yep. And I wanted to be in hospital and I wanted him to be there. Yep. 
and I needed to be birthed on my side. All the things that we kind of unpacked in that nine months happened with a second vaginal birth. For me, that was so healing. Oh my gosh. Goosebumps right now. (laughs) That's amazing. And And people are always shocked to know that it was an obstetrician male that did that. I'm like, yeah, he did. I think, and they're like, oh, they're very rare. Potentially, yes. yes. We we went shopping. yeah, this is where it's so not black and white because I, I, I was like, wow, he sounds really yeah. supportive. It's so like not quick to be like, cool, we'll book you in for a season. Cool, we'll do an induction you just because they can. But I think that's that's life, isn't it? It's so not black and white. Like male OB versus female midwife. Like you could have an absolutely like terrible midwife who is pushing all sorts of things on you and a male OB who is completely for non-intervention as natural as possible, like, or as patient support as possible, whatever it is. You can't make broad brushstrokes about what people are going to be like. That sounds amazing. How supportive. I will say we went obstetrician shopping. So the first two we went in and the first one in particular, and I just said, here's my $250. Goodbye. She goes, do you need to make another appointment? I said, no, we do not. We do know. He said to me in that appointment, oh, look, you're only seven weeks. Let's just see if it even takes. What? Yeah. He goes, let's just worry about it then. Because I was talking to him about the trauma of the first and how I was trying to decide whether to do cesarean or vaginal birth. And he just said, just wait and see. You're only seven weeks. Like, And I walked out there going, what? Did he like, thank you for showing me this so early on so that I can take my money elsewhere. (laughs) And I can go home panicking about a miscarriage for the next week. Thank you. Yeah, so he was not our guy. Language, isn't it? Like, they're probably trying to be like, don't worry, you put time, but it just doesn't come across properly, yeah. No, no, no. So, yeah, he. I I do realise that my OB is probably um, a gem. Yeah. I'm so thankful for him. You walked into that saying, these are my preferences. This is what's important to me. That was your dynamic. Whereas if maybe you walked in with a different dynamic, yeah, you wouldn't have the same experience. It's so unique. Like it's like a fingerprint, really. I don't think anyone has the exact same experience anywhere in the world. It's so highly individual. Yeah. And how good is this conversation that I hope that the women listening can actually take it in and say, yeah, it's not a cookie cutter. And I, I wish it like, wouldn't, don't you wish you could wave a magic wand and say, Hey, if you do this, this, and this, you, you'll be totally oh, fine. <laughs> 100% the amount of women that asked me, Hey, Laura, I've had a three C tear, or I've had a prolapse. What should I do this time? And I'm like, Oh honey, I so wish I could tell you, mm-hmm. you should do this, but I cannot. So what I do is I'm like, here are the eight questions that you need to think about for you yeah. and ask your care provider. And then go with what feels right. But yes, I wish. Maybe you should call this podcast grey. <laughs> 50 shades of grey but not that grey. Spectrum of grey. <laughs> I agree and I love that you've got those questions. I've got reflective questions at the end of each chapter of my book because it's not about scaring women, it's about making them uh, just some some thought process about oh what could this mean for me? Yep second birth or beyond or my first birth or whatever because yeah I don't I'm like you I don't believe we should be scaring pregnant women I would like to be seeing us talking about this much earlier than pregnancy so even if you've just decided you're going to become a mum one day or you've found a new partner and it might be on the cards then you start talking about it even around menstruation the pelvic floor conversations can start then because you would know as an athlete I only found out after the fact that possibly being an athlete would have led to some pelvic floor dysfunction before I even thought about having a baby. 
Oh, athletes are the worst because most athletes have an overactive pelvic floor because everything is on and tight and it's terrible, really. If I get an athlete come in with six-pack abs, I know I'm going to have to be doing some releasing and some lengthening and some down training of their pelvic floor. Often these women, like the amount of gymnasts, they're incontinent, which yeah. you would think Dances. that doesn't make sense because they're mm. strong and they're fit and they haven't had babies. But again, there's so much taboo and shame around it. It'd be so cool if women were in touch. I feel like, again, our generation, we're going to all have the red tent. We're going to be talking about menstruation, pelvic floors. These poor 13-year-old girls are going to be like, mom, can you just give yeah. us a break? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, um, we chatted on the show with the vagina coach from the U.S., Okay, and she said her son says mom stop responding to my instagram from your vagina account my (laughs) my friends are like mom who is that (laughs) i love it it infiltrates the entire family (laughs) it's good and like we said we've got daughters but our sons in our families are just as important to these conversations as our partners so 100 my husband is like the biggest pregnancy birth junkie. So people will have babies Love and he's like, oh my God, tell me how was the birth, blah, blah, blah. And they'll kind of look at him like, really? Because no other male has ever been this interested in my birth story. And then they remember, oh yeah, that's Laura's husband. Yeah. You know, this makes so much sense. You see her Laura's husband. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Laura, can I just say, I have absolutely thoroughly enjoyed every minute of our conversation. You have also taught me so much. So thank you. Thank oh, you. Thank, thank you. you. No, that was so much fun. I could chat to you all day. That was really enjoyable. Thank you, Steph. Three things I want you to try and implement and put into practice in your life this week. The word no, the word why, and the word help. Being able to say no to things is really important. Remember Laura, she spoke to us about not having to be people pleasers. See if you can try and implement that this week by saying no just to one thing. And by the way, no is a complete sentence. You don't have to say no, justification, reason, why. It's just no. And the second one is to ask why. I like to do five whys. Just like a curious two-year-old. But why is that? And why is that? Oh, okay. But why is that? Because as you can see, by going down deeper into those levels of whys, you are unpacking further and further and you're getting more and more information because the more information you have gives you the ability to feel empowered. And finally, being able to ask for help. And that's obviously the physical stuff. It's also asking for help when you are stuck in being able to make a decision or not. By going to someone and saying, I don't know what to do here. This is the information I've been presented with. Can you help me work through that to a place where I feel okay with my decision? I want to see some of you try that. And if you are willing, you can share it with us. Share your journey of empowerment. You can message directly on Instagram at bravemama or you can email contact at bravemama.com because we love celebrating the wins. This is what our community is all about. If you've implemented any of those three things in your life and it's been helpful for you to feel good and feel empowered by that, share it with us. 
We'd love to share it on the show as well. You can do it anonymously or not. It's up to you, but there's an opportunity for you. So let's feel empowered. If you want to feel empowered with your periods, especially with prolapse or your leakage, there is that Moddy Body code, which is BRAVEMAMA22, and you can use it to get 15% off to give Moddy Body a try to see if you too can feel empowered by not having to use pads or disposable period products. Also share it with those who you love, who you think, oh, they might like to try that too, because there's a 60-day risk-free trial. It probably doesn't get much better than that. Until next week, bye for now. Mama.